So the topic for tonight is, um, actually the title is The Way to Love. And it's inspired by this little tiny book, if you can see from the distance, <laughs> so small you can miss it. Um, it's called The Way to Love, The Last Meditations of Anthony the Mellow. Is there anyone in the room who's familiar with this little gem? Anyone? Now, oh, this will be a treat then. For, this is great. I love this little book. So, so um, I ran into this little book um, years ago on the bookshelf of, of a friend of mine who's a practitioner in the Dharma, and I saw the title, The Way to Love. Wow, how intriguing. Don't we all want to learn the way to love? Wow, isn't how cool is that? I was intrigued. Okay, so I started to to read it and read it, and and then he gave me the book. So that's, that's the book. Um, so it's it's a lovely set of very pithy, profound, powerful, and challenging teachings about the way to love that you don't exactly expect. It's not. It's not, you know, a sappy love storybook. It's it's challenging. It's about practice. It's very interesting. So, I wanted to read part of this tonight and just share this, this this gem. So, just a few um, words about who Anthony the Mellow is. So, Anthony the Mellow, um, who passed away, he lived from 1931 to 1987. He was an Indian um, Jesuit priest and psychotherapist. Um, spiritual teacher, writer, public speaker. And um, he had an unconventional approach to priesthood and used um, both teachings from the both Eastern and Western traditions, said the Wikipedia. So I can tell you, when I started to read this book, um, it sounded really Buddhist to me. I mean, I saw the Four Noble Truths in here, even though he's a Jesuit priest. And every chapter... Uh, has a little title and starts with a quote from the Bible. And then he has a musing about it for a few pages. So each chapter is pretty short. It's just his reflections. And it's totally Buddhist to me. So uh, I'll offer it as an inter an, as a, um, interfaith Buddhist offering tonight. And, um, and um, oh yeah, and I wanted to share a couple of other things before I started. So... I was checking the Amazon reviews, and, and the Amazon reviews are all great. And and um, few of them say, this little book changed my life. And, and one review was great. It said, this book ruined my, my life. I highly recommend it. <laughs> and had given it five out of five stars. So, <laughs> so with that in mind, <laughs> here, here to ruin your life. Just kidding. So... Okay, so um, so let me start with reading you a little bit from this chapter um, called um, "Be Awake." The chapter is called "Be Awake," and you'll also see how the exercise that we did kind of fits in with the theme. So, okay, all right. Let me see. Okay, so. The chapter starts with a quote from Luke twelve thirty seven says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Everywhere in the world, people are in search of love, for everyone is convinced that love alone can save the world. Love alone can make life meaningful and worth living. But how very few understand what love really is and how it arises in the human heart. It is so frequently equated with good feelings towards others, with benevolence or non-violence or service. But these things in themselves are not love. He's already been challenging, right? Okay, let's see what, what else he's going to say. Love springs from awareness. Ah, does that sound familiar to anyone practicing Buddhism? <laughs> Love springs from awareness. And also you notice how when you did the exercise, you, you gave attention, awareness to another person, you brought awareness to, to yourself. Love springs from awareness. It is only in as much as you see someone as he or she really is here and now, and not as they are in your memory or your desire or in your imagination or projection that you can truly love them. Otherwise, it is not the person that you love, but the idea that you have formed of this person or this person as the, pri- as the object of your desire, not as he or she is in themselves. Whew. Pretty challenging, right? Do- and it's pretty profound. We see that, yeah. There's so, so, in, there's so much in our way of loving others that it's really the image that we project onto them. Especially, it, this is this is really apparent when when we're in the phase of infatuation, right? In a, in a new relationship, and oh, this person is the answer, you know, is the projection, is the, is the perfect projection of, of all our dreams and hopes. And later, as we get to know them more and more, we realize, wow, there are so many projections. We're loving our projection of what we think this person is. And we also continue this, not just in our infatuation phase, but, but in all of our relationships. I'll continue. Therefore, the first act of love is to see this person or this object this reality as it truly is. And this involves the enormous discipline of dropping your desires, your prejudices, your memories, your projections, your selective way of looking, a discipline so great that most people would rather plunge headlong into good actions and service than submit to the, bur- to the burning fire of this asceticism. When you set out to serve someone, whom you have not taken the trouble to see, are you meeting the person's need or your own? So the first ingredient of love is to really see the other. Wow. Whew, let's sit with that for a moment. Does that re- resonate? Yeah. Yeah, it's... um. I have a friend who serves as a Buddhist chaplain <clears throat> in hospitals, and uh, she's been talking to me about how when she goes into a new hospital room and a new situation, both with her training um, in the chaplaincy and her training in, in, in as, as a Buddhist chaplain, 
she's meeting the person new, fresh, and that she brings herself there and and just sees okay what is who is this person what is needed there instead of bring, bringing her projections oh i'm supposed to come here and i'm supposed to do this and i'm supposed to be the helper i'm supposed to be the comforter i'm supposed to none of that just being and seeing the person as clearly as possible without our projections onto them what they are and who they are so when when he talks when the mellow talks about when you set out to serve someone whom you have not taken the trouble to see, are you meeting that person's need or your own? And this happens a lot in, in many situations in our lives when we're serving another person in, in whatever shape or form it is. Are we really seeing them clearly for who they are or, or through the lens of our projections of what we want them to be or what we think they are, we should be doing. So it's, it's the lens of our projection. Actually, this point also is is very well um, raised. I want to bring in, in the, another book. So there is, it's, a, it's a double header tonight. So I'm going to bring another favorite book of mine. Um, and that book is actually called... And it, to me, it's another Buddhist book. It's called Difficult Conversations. Anyone familiar with this one? Yeah, a few people. Great. So this is, um, the subtitle is How to Discuss What Matters Most. And the authors um, are um, for part of the Harvard Negotiation Project. And this was a New York Times bestseller. Basically, the book talks about how to, um, in, 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 you know, loving people. In, and by the way, when I talk about love i'm not just using it uh for for romantic relationships um love is shorthand for a way of being in the world when you're interacting with your colleague and you're giving them your attention your you, you bring you bring present with them it's an act of love because you're being present with that with that with that being with that person so so i'm using love a way to love and the way he uses it is a shorthand for being in the world is the way of being in the world is the way to love so in relationship with people it never it 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 um conflict is where the um is when our projections is most highlighted our projections, our our needs, our demands, what we're putting on the other person is during conflict is is mostly highlighted. Um, and one thing that I love about this book, which ties in with that, is is their um, offer and suggestion to to separate um, the the harm that is done. So, so the, the, uh, the title of one chapter here is this disentangle intent from impact. So often what we do in conflict, there's been an impact on us. We're hurt. We're upset. You know, something has happened. There's impact, right? We right away immediately attribute intention. Ah, you want to control me. You want to hurt me. You want to, uh, right? Right away. We're we're attributing, we're, we're putting this lens of projection, of intention on this other person. What this book suggests is, is separating, is separating the impact that has happened from 
from the attribution of intention. We, we don't know what their intention was. We have no idea what the intention of the person was. We have some attribution of the intention. We think what it was, but we don't really know what the intention of the person was. So, that's, that's one aspect of it. Um, the other aspect is that um, we treat ourselves a lot more charitably than we treat other people's intentions. Has anyone noticed that? There's actually a name for that. It's called um, blind spot bias. Psychologists have a name for it. Um, and it's defined as... Um, it's a cognitive bias of recognizing the impact of biases on the judgment of others while failing to see the impact of biases on our own judgment. So, in other words, um, I read I read a paragraph from here. What's ironic and all too human, by the way, it's all too human because um, it's not that we're bad or we're intentionally trying to not see the blind spot. It's actually, um, it's part of, unfortunately, it's a part of our, our makeup unless we really become, uh, uh, bring a lot of awareness to our own biases with, with practice and with mindfulness. Um, there, there are many um, psychological studies. I'll give you one example. So, so they, they bring um, subjects into, um, in, in, into the room and um, Usually they set it. They set. There's so many experiments, but one of them is they set it up such that subjects have a pot of money to give away. Um, so and and they're asked, you know, how do they think other people would give this money away, and you know, how much of it would they keep for themselves? How much would they give away? And how much do they think they would give away or or, or keep for themselves? And people always rate themselves more highly, give themselves, oh yeah, I have more pure motives and other people, or they're going to uh, give less of it away. And they make, actually, they make the um, uh, setup a little more complicated than I'm explaining. But, but making a long story short, when actually people give the money away, they give not as much as they thought they would give away, but... At, probably as much as or perhaps even less than what they thought other people would give away. So we always, um, uh, we're, we, 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 um, we're not really capable of seeing our, our own intentions, motives, biases. So let me continue with this. So what's ironic and all too human about our tendency to attribute bad intentions to others is how differently we treat ourselves. When your husband for, forgets to pick up the dry cleaning, he's irresponsible. When you forget to book the airline tickets, it's because you're overworked and stressed out. When a coworker criticizes your work in front of the department colleagues, she's trying to put you down. When you offer suggestions to others in the same meeting, you are trying to be helpful. Is that familiar? Yeah. Um, so... So I'm going to come back to this in a moment. I'm going to read another part. Let's go back to the the way to love. So the first part that he was talking about in loving is to 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 see the projections that we have unto unto other people, and try to see 
the other as clearly as we possibly can. The second ingredient is equally important to see yourself, to ruthlessly, okay, he says ruthlessly, I'm going to say to gently, because I'm going to come back to this, to gently flash the light of awareness on your own motives, your emotions, your needs, your dishonesty, your self-seeking, your tendency to control and manipulate. This means calling things by their name, no matter how painful the discovery and the consequences. If you achieve this kind of awareness of the other and yourself, you will know what love is, for you will have attained a mind and a heart that is alert, vigilant, clear, sensitive, a clarity of perception, a sensitivity that will draw out of of you an accurate, appropriate response to every situation at every moment. The appropriate response, which is what we talk about in practice, right? This This should sound familiar to many of you. I'll read this last part again. A sensitivity, a clarity of perception that will draw out Will, that will draw out of you an accurate, appropriate response to every situation at every moment. Because then you're not driven by your, your own motives and intentions and, and this, this, um, this filter that you're looking through, your own filter, and the projections that you're putting on the world. So I want to come back to this um, examination to do it gently or ruthlessly. So... Many years ago, I made this part of my practice. So um, I actually it was motivated by this book, by Difficult Conversations. More, more than a decade ago, I was in a relationship where there was conflict, and I was, exam- I was reading this book, and, and I came to this paragraph. Be open to reflecting on the complexity of your intentions. When it comes time to consider your intentions, try to avoid the tendency to say, my intentions were pure. We usually think about ourselves and sometimes we usually think that about ourselves and sometimes it's true. But often, as we've seen, intentions are more complex. Whoa. When I read this, it was news to me. I had never considered that my intentions are mixed. I always thought, oh, of course I have the best intentions. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I'm kind. I have the best intentions in this relationship. I want the best for me, the best for you, best for us. So I made it my, my practice to really become curious about my own intentions. And I made the mistake of not doing it gently. I did it ruthlessly. I was very ruthless, every intention. So, so it, was, it was very good practice because I was doing it. So, so what I really learned was extremely humbling, extremely humbling. It just really opened my eyes. Wow. Because there were a lot of, lot of things I was doing. At first I was thinking, oh, of course, well, it's this because I care and this and that. I was like, oh, but there's a little bit of fear. There's a little bit of possessiveness. There's a little bit of jealousy. You know, whatever was present, I would see like, oh, moi? It it was so interesting. So it was so humbling um, to see all of this. It's, um, and I don't think I'm any different. Any of us, we're, we're, 
we, we are, none of us are any different than any other. So bringing, actually being completely honest with ourselves. And in this practice uh, of mindfulness, we bring everything to the forefront and we do it gently. And the gentleness is when you see the fear, when you see the jealousy, when you see the, the possessiveness, whatever the, the little, you know, impurities are, you don't go, oh, awful, terrible, me, 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 bad, bad. You don't do like, like oh, okay, it's there. It's human nature. You, you just see it. You just gently shine the light of awareness. You just gently, gently do that, very gently. And just simply by just seeing it, it's not like, it's not that you're bad. It's, it's human nature. You just take it as human nature. But that honesty, that, that gentle, kind, caring, loving honesty lets you be more authentic, really see your own intentions, your own motives, and, and the projections you have onto others. So, so... Don't do it ruthlessly because learn from my mistakes. So what I did was I wasn't just shining the light gently at the time. I was really new in my practice. And it was more of a oh, horror of, oh my goodness, this is news to me. And, and it, gave um, it gave rise to doubt, to the energy of doubt, which is not a healthy energy to have. So every, any motive, anything I want, wanted to do, any motivation I had, intention, I would question it with this ruthlessness and, and doubt and it, it became a little problematic so it has to kind of balance it with gentleness so learn from my mistake if you decide to take on this practice do it very gently shine the light of awareness very gently on your motives you'll still be humbled because it's a beautiful practice to be humbled um, and to really know wow okay you're just a human being just like anybody else we're all mixed bags there are no saints here anyone <laughs> so, so I'm going to continue. Yes. So, so I also want to tie this in with the teachings of the Satipatthana Sutta. <clears throat> so, in the Satipatthana Sutta, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, which is um, a very important text in Theravada Buddhism. It, it's called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and a lot of practices that we teach, um, uh, especially in secular mindfulness, they come out of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta. And in that sutta, it talks about both internal and external mindfulness. So... I want to make a connection between what we've just been discussing here. So the internal mindfulness, internally being aware of not just the state of your body, your mind, your breathing, but also your intentions and motives. Uh, the third satipatthana is, is the mind. So being aware of the state of mind, being aware of, of whatever the state of mind is. So this internal awareness. And then there is external awareness, directing mindfulness externally to, out, to the outside, to other people, seeing them with that light of awareness. So that's what Anthony DeMello is talking about in a way, right? It's that love, it's that, 
He's equating love with awareness, with clear seeing, both internally, seeing your own motivations, your own um, needs, judgments, seeing all of those clearly so that, so that you're not bound by them, and also seeing externally, mindfulness externally, clear seeing externally the other people, not through this lens of projections that we have. So I'd like to continue to another chapter from Anthony DeMello. So this chapter, more challenging teachings, is called The Mountain of Prayer. And it starts with Matthew 14.23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Has it ever occurred to you that you can only love when you're alone? What does it mean to love? It means to see a person, a thing, a situation as it really is and not as you imagine it to be and to give it the response it deserves. You cannot love what you do not see. I love that. You cannot love what you do not see. And what prevents you from seeing your concepts, your categories, your, pre- your prejudices and projections, your needs and attachments, the labels you have drawn from your conditioning and from your past experiences? Seeing is the most arduous thing a human being can undertake. To drop your conditioning in order to see, to order to see is arduous enough. Now it gets really interesting. But seeing calls for something more painful still. Are you ready? (laughs) The dropping of the control the society exercises over you, a control whose tentacles have penetrated to the very roots of your being, so that to drop it is to tear yourself apart. If you wish to understand this, think of a little child that is given a taste for drugs. This is my favorite simile that he has in the whole book. As the drug penetrates the body of the child, it becomes addicted and, is, and its whole being cries out for the drug. To be without the drug is so unbearable, a torment, that it seems preferable to die. Now, this is exactly what society did to you when you were a child. You were not allowed to enjoy the solid, nutritious food of life work and play and the company of people and the pleasures of the senses and the mind. You were given a taste for the drug called approval, appreciation, attention, the drug called success, prestige, power. Having got a taste for these things, you become addicted. You became addicted and began to dread their loss. You felt terror at the prospect of failure, of mistakes, of the criticism of others. So you became cravenly dependent on people and lost your freedom. Others now have the power to make you happy or miserable. And much as you now hate the suffering this involves, you find yourself completely helpless. There is never a minute when, consciously or unconsciously, you are not attuned to the reaction of others. 
marching to the drum of their demands. When you're ignored or disapproved of, you experience a loneliness so unbearable that you crawl back to people to beg for the comfort known as support, encouragement, reassurance. To live with people in this state involves never-ending tension, but to live without them brings the agony of loneliness. You have lost your capacity to see them clearly as they are and to respond as they are and to respond to them accurately because mostly your perception of them is clouded by your need to get your drug. That's pretty profound too. How many of you see yourself in that? Anybody not see yourself in that? Yeah. Maybe I should, I should be asking that. Whew, yeah. Um, again, share, sharing with you from my own practice, shining the light of gentle awareness, become, I've become more and more aware through the years in my practice of, of the desire to, to be liked, the desire to please. Anybody else have that? Yeah, yeah. It's and not that it's bad. It's not bad. It's just seeing that. Wow, oh, those are my levers. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this thing for this person. Yeah, of course, there's some generosity in this. I'm donating my time, my resources. Oh, and look at that. Oh, isn't that nice? I have a little bit of wanting to be liked. And Okay, just seeing that, just clearly seeing, clearly seeing what are our levels. And as I've been... Um, in the teacher training and, and, and sharing the Dharma, it's actually been a very important part of my training to really see that clearly and learn to care and not to care. To, to still share what I think is, is helpful, valuable, and, and work with not caring so much about what other people think. Like if you got up and left, I'd be okay. I think. <laughs> Earlier in my teaching career, it would be very difficult. You know, my mind would get very nervous and upset, like, oh my God, what did I say? It was ter-. But it's like, you know, maybe they need to go to the bathroom. Maybe you just, whatever, it is what it is. It's, I, I'm not giving my peace away. You can still give up and get up and leave and I'll still have my peace. That's freedom, right? But if my peace, if my freedom depended on what you did for me, what you did to me, how special you made me feel, ooh, that's miserable. Because the moment you wouldn't do that, I would be so miserable. Oh my goodness. They didn't like my dog. It was terrible. They threw tomatoes. Um, it's, I'm being a little silly, but you see the point. It's such a practice. It's such a practice not to give away your peace or what he calls your power, your freedom. One more paragraph from here. The consequence of all this is terrifying and inescapable. You have become incapable of loving anyone or anything. If you wish to love, you must learn to see again. And if you wish to see, you must give up your drug. Because then you get to see people for what they are and who they are, but not what they do for you by making you feel good, special, liked, whatever successful, appreciated, whatever 
approved, all of that. All right, we'll continue the roller coaster ride to, to another chapter. Are you with me? Yeah, okay, great. So this chapter is called Bring in the Poor. Bring in the Poor. And it starts with Luke fourteen twenty one. Actually, let me see if I had already read everything I wanted to read from the last chapter. Uh, yeah, okay. Bring in the poor. Luke fourteen twenty one. The householder. Oh yeah, this is good. The householder in anger said to his servant, "Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and maimed, and blind and lame." And the mellow the mellow starts. Think of someone you dislike. Okay, let's do that together. Okay, think. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Okay, think of someone you dislike. I'm going to continue reading while you have your eyes closed. Someone you generally avoid because his or her presence generates negative feelings in you. Imagine yourself in this person's presence now. Okay, so imagine yourself in this person's presence now. And watch the negative emotions arise. You are quite conceivably in the presence of someone who is poor, crippled, blind, or lame. Okay, he continues. Now understand that if you invite this person, this beggar from the streets, I love, by the way, he's using the simile of the blind and the lame as the as what what in this practice we call our, our difficult person, when we do the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, um, uh, we start from where it's easy. We start with ourselves, we start with a beloved person, we start with, with um, a benefactor, then we move to someone who's neutral, we neither like or dislike. And then when we have all the training wheels under us, we extend, in the practice of loving-kindness in Theravada, we ex- extend it to our difficult person, the, which in this case, this is the, the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame in, in this language, right? Um, so so in, in, in the loving-kindness practice, it's, it's where we keep pushing the edge in order to, to keep pushing the edge of our heart to be more and more and more open to the world. So... So continuing to read his, his language. Now understand that if you invite this person, this beggar from the streets and alleys, into your home, that is, into your presence, he or she will make you a gift that none of your charming, pleasant friends can make you, rich as they are. He or she is going to reveal your, yourself to you and reveal human nature to you. A revelation as precious as any found in scriptures. For what will it profit you to know all the scriptures if you do not know yourself and so live the life of a robot? The revelation that is bigger that, that this beggar is going to bring will widen your heart till there is room in it for every living creature. Can there be a finer gift than that? 
And as I was explaining, it's the similar practice in in metta and loving kindness when you keep extending your heart. And um, actually, let me read the next paragraph. I think it'll it'll become clear. Now take a look at yourself reacting negatively and ask yourself the following question. Am I in charge of this situation or is the situation in charge of me? (laughs) That is the first revelation. With it comes the second. The way to be in charge of the situation is to be in charge of yourself, which you are not. How does one achieve this mastery? All you have to do is to understand there are people in the world who, if they were in your place, would not be negatively affected by this person. They would be in charge of the situation, above it, not subject to it as you are. Therefore, your negative feelings are caused not by this person, as you mistakenly think, but by your programming. Here is the third and major revelation. See what happens when you really understand this. So when we really start to look and look clearly, it's usually not so much about them. It's, it's our reaction. Because if it was somebody else in, in this situation, they could be perfectly fine with, with, with this person who, who's our difficult person. Um, having said that, there are times that there, there are some beings that are a little more difficult than others. But still, it is... It is our program, it is the way that we are, it's, it's the limitation of our heart to be, to be with, um, to, to either tighten or to expand and to al- allow this, this flow of, of love and ease to be there. Because the person who's getting more hurt, actually, in the presence of this beggar in, in, in this lingo is actually us. We are the person who's who's getting irate and upset and, and uncomfortable and and who's who's tight who's whose heart is getting more and more tight. Having received these revelations about yourself, listen to this revelation concerning human nature. This behavior, this trait in the other person that causes you to react negatively, do you realize that he or she is not responsible for it? You can hold on to your negative feelings only when you mistakenly believe that he or she is free. Oh, actually, this this is really beautiful, this part. You can only hold on to your negative feelings only when you mistakenly believe that he or she is free and aware and therefore responsible. But whoever did evil in awareness? We don't use evil in, in our practice, but on unwholesome actions. But it's the same thing. Whoever does unwholesome actions in full awareness? In our teachings, the, the, the three poisons, the roots of unwholesome actions, are greed, which is wanting, really pulling greed, hatred, pushing away, and the root of greed and hatred is confusion or delusion or lack of awareness when you don't know, when you don't know you hurt people, when you don't understand, because if you really, really understood, and if you had a, 
using this language, if you had the eye of God, if you had the, 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 the compassionate eye, and if you knew the kind of pain that you're causing other people with your actions, you would never hurt anyone. I'm actually going to take take a, um, a little left turn here and and relate what I mean here. Um, so I've had a fascination with um, reading um, NDE reports, near death experiences, and there are hundreds of near death experience reports that you can read in various books and and online. There are websites where people just you know report their near-death experiences and, and many many people were drowned and they didn't have a pulse and they came back and and or had a heart attack and they were gone for a while anyway and as you've heard about them there are many things that these reports have in common regardless of the background and the age and the country and and the religion's experience so so for now let's just keep an don't know mind who knows true false I just want to offer it as a um, uh, as a mental exercise, so that the point I'm trying to make becomes clearer with 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 this example. So, so the mental exercise, the 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 the, the, uh, the thought exercise to take on is one thing that I've read over and over over is you know since people see a tunnel, there's a loving being, they feel completely loved and accepted uh, by a loving being. And then one thing that many people also report is that um, they have a life review. They have a flash through of all of the events of their lives. And there is no judge there. But as they're seeing every, as they're feeling magically somehow in rapid succession, they're re-experiencing every moment of their, their life. They're not just experiencing from their perspective, but from everybody else's perspective. So there's no one who's judging them at the time. It's like, oh, you did that. They actually feel like, oh, I did that. Oh, my God, that hurts so much. I hurt the other person so much. Or oh, I was generous. Oh, how wonderful that felt. So it's people are being their own judge in the way. Um, but coming back to this, if you had that kind of clarity as a thought experiment, so let's go of that. Who knows? Don't know mine. Whether that's true or not, that's going to happen to us, the unknown. I don't know. But just take it on as, as a thought experiment. If you really had that kind of a clarity of clear seeing, this, this clear seeing, this eye that sees through the hearts, not just your own heart, but everybody else's heart, how much joy your actions cause all around 360 or how much pain your actions cause. Would you ever hurt anyone? People who've had these NDs, they come back and, and it changes their lives. They don't want to hurt anybody because they, they just feel how, how hurtful it's been. So taking that on and, and reading this, understanding this in that, in that way, that who, uh, but whoever did evil in awareness, Right? Whenever we do some unwholesome actions, because we don't know, we don't un we don't truly see, we don't truly understand how much it hurts others, and it really hurts ourselves. We really don't truly see, so we can only do something unwholesome when we don't understand, when we're in ignorance. So, continuing with this, the ability to do evil, 
or unwholesome actions, or to be evil, again, unwholesome actions, is not freedom but is sickness, for it implies a lack of consciousness and sensitivity. Those who are truly free cannot sin as God cannot sin. And again, in our language, those who are truly free cannot do unwholesome acts because they'll, they'll see clearly. They won't have the, this root of delusion or confusion in their mind. This poor person here in front of you is crippled, blind, lame, not stubborn and malicious as you thof, as you so foolishly thought. Understand this truth. Look at it steadfastly and deeply and you will see your negative emotions turn into gentleness and compassion. Suddenly you have room in your heart for someone who was consigned to the streets and alleys by others and by you. Now you will realize that this beggar came to your home with an alms for you, the widening of your heart in compassion and the release of your spirit in freedom. Where before you used to be controlled, these persons had the power to create negative emotions in you, and you went out of your way to avoid them. We do that sometimes with some people in our lives. They really control us. We go out of our way to avoid them, don't we? They have power over us. Now you have the gift of freedom to avoid no one to go anywhere. When you see this, you will notice how... Uh, you will. My eyes are getting worse. When, when you see this, you will notice how to the feeling of compassion in your heart has been added the feeling of gratitude to this beggar who is your benefactor. Wow, now he's ho- turning the whole thing around, right? As they say in Tibetan Buddhism, your difficult person is your best teacher, Right? And now he's calling it your benefactor. This, your difficult person is your best teacher because this person shows you about the limitations, about the tightness in your heart. And if you can work through that, your heart will expand above and beyond anything you ever imagined possible. And another new unaccustomed feeling you actually feel a desire to seek out the company of these growth-producing, crippled, blind, and lame people the way someone who has learned to swim seeks water. Because each time you are with them, where before you used to, where before you used to feel the oppression and tyranny of negative feelings, you can now actually feel an ever-expanding compassion and the freedom of the skies. And you can barely recognize yourself as you see yourself going out into the streets and alleys of the town in obedience to the master's injunction to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. Mm. Yeah. So we can go on and on but the time is drawing close so the name of the book is is the way to love if you're thirsty for more and let's just sit together for a moment and let the words 
sink, sink in. May all your hearts be free. Enjoy a taste of freedom to love and receive love freely. you for your kind attention. May you love well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.